chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Well, this is round one of Moses, Aaron, before Pharaoh. And there's a lot more that's going to go on here. This is going to play out, these face-to-face encounters between Moses and Aaron on behalf of the Lord speaking to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh, this powerful king over Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the world, hardened in his heart on his own and then hardened by the Lord. Just this incredible confrontation and conflict of these forces, temporal human power versus the kingdom of God moving and it's, it's a man fighting God. It's a powerful man fighting God. I mean, Pharaoh is a powerful man fighting God, but you can find people in the gutters fighting God. We are born rebels with a sinful nature, and we're at war with God. And that's why we're told when we give our life to Christ, having therefore been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are all rebels at conflict with the Lord. So we might set up false belief systems that we choose to believe in to harden our heart against the Lord and against the witness of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We might follow false religions and different philosophies or say we're atheists or agnostic. We don't believe in anything. Or we might be like Pharaoh and said, I'm God. Who's the Lord? And we probably all know someone like this. I mean, this is, this is that prideful person who goes like, what? What are you talking about? I'm the boss around here. I run the ship. I'm captain of the ship. I own the business. I own the city. Whatever. I own this country, this you know, authoritarian, totalitarian government. It's all about Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's worship is God. So this is that conflict between an individual man against his creator. But when when we think about not just this powerful man, but we bring it down to just a human being, we realize that there's a little bit of Pharaoh in all of us and that we fight God. And to what degree it's manifested, how we resist the Lord or how we persecute God's people who are a witness to us, that varies from experience to experience of each individual person. In this case, we have a powerful man who is wrestling with God at war with God in his heart, and he's going to punish God's people because he's at war with God. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. There are people in power who just hate God. They hate the church. They hate the name of Jesus Christ. They hate people who confess Jesus Christ, and they attack, and they attack, and they attack. And they exist in our country. They exist in every country. They might exist in your family. There are people that are very hostile to the good news of Jesus Christ and the purposes of God in your life and what God's calling you to do. And as we give our life to Christ, what we find is each step forward with the Lord is a step in his will. And we're the light of the world. We're a city on a hill. And as our light goes forward, we're shining in the darkness. 
And as we shine in the darkness, some people are very excited to have the light turned on in the darkness, and they are drawn to the light. But then there are some people who hate the light because men love darkness and they love their evil deeds, so they resist the light. And so you get persecution in the family, you get persecution at work, and you get this conflict. You can walk in the room as a believer and not say anything, but the light just went on, and you'll feel the animosity and the hostility against you. And we should not be surprised by this. In fact, Jesus said, Blessed are you when men persecute you for my name's sake, and blessed are you when men persecute you for righteousness' sake. He said that at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, Moses, you got it. It's tough for Moses and Aaron, and you're representing the Lord, you're representing God's people, and you go before Pharaoh, and this guy, it's tough. Ministry and obedience to the Lord can be very difficult at times, and it's particularly difficult when you feel like God has sent you to someone that's as hard as as hard as a rock. Jeremiah had this kind of ministry. Isaiah had this kind of ministry. This just is the way it can go. But in the end, it's not about how someone responds favorably or disfavorably. It's about us being faithful to the Lord. And that's what I really see here. Pharaoh's going to be Pharaoh. And there are Pharaohs in your life. They're going to always be Pharaoh. Now, we don't know who they are. There might be Pharaohs who come to the faith in the Lord, like Saul of Tarsus, who's killing Christians, and then he gets saved and becomes Paul the Apostle. But then there's Pharaohs that are Pharaohs, and they're just given over, and God's hardened their heart, and there's no hope for them. Now, God knows who they are, but we don't know who they are, but they're there. So there's some people that are tender, response, and love the Lord. There are some people that are indifferent to the Lord, and they kind of laugh, but they don't get hostile, like the people at Mars Hill in Acts 17 when Paul preached. And then there's people... You get like Pharaoh. They're just really mad. And they want to punish people. They want to punish believers. They want to punish do-gooders, if you will. They want to punish people who stand for righteousness. And they want to shut us down. You know, they, and if, if they got government power, they want to shut us down. So whether it's, again, totalitarian, authoritarian governments or agencies within our own country that try and silence the witness of the gospel in the workplace, in schools, in education, in the marketplace of thought, they are hostile. And they'll come after you. They'll come after your business. They'll come after your family. But the main thing is, is not to be surprised by it or to be moved by it, but just to be faithful to the Lord and pray for those people. We're called to pray for enemies. And if you've got a Pharaoh in your life, I'm sorry. But nonetheless, God has a plan with Pharaoh in your life to to help you love people unconditionally. And it's a tough thing when you're called to minister to Pharaoh because not only does he reject your witness, he doesn't mock it. He attacks it, and he punishes people to make you look bad and to make you look bad and to afflict those who are even associated with you, and that's what we get here. But do not be surprised. Pharaoh is a very self-deceived person, and I'd rather be afflicted by Pharaoh than to be Pharaoh, obviously, and so would you. Now we pick it up in verse 10. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourself straw when you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants, and they say to us, Make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is your own people. But he, Pharaoh, said, You are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, 
Go now and work, for no straw shall be given to you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron, who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you've made us abhorred in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put the sword in their hand to kill us. Well, the heat's getting turned up in Egypt. And the heat's getting turned up on the people God's going to deliver and the leadership. First of all, you've got to consider the relationship that the leaders of the slaves had with their taskmasters. I mean, even in the cruelest things like concentration camps, there's still like a pecking order. Like there's still contact between the oppressors and the oppressed and how things get done. When one people occupy another people, they work with local people, whether they're collaborators or whatever, to how it's going to work. And so if you're a boss for Israel, you probably had benefits. Like you probably get treated a little different. You probably had a little bit of rapport with your taskmasters. But forget that. That's over here. It's not happening. And so these Israelite leaders, they literally go to Pharaoh and go like, hey, dude, like, what's up? It's almost like a, a union, you know, like it's like a union going like, hey, we got a deal here. Like, we work for you. We make bricks. We eat food. Everyone's happy. You're the boss. We're the, we're the entry-level workforce. And, you know, like, what's the matter here? And Pharaoh's like, idle, idle, idle. So you see, Pharaoh's just being given over to his depravity, and he's going to take it out on these people. And as this plays out, very interesting here in this last verse that I read, that in verse 21, the leaders attacked Moses and Aaron. Sometimes, most of the time, it's very difficult to be in spiritual leadership. You have many enemies. All you have to do is look at any spiritual leader that you would respect. I think of a Pastor Chuck, or Greg Laurie, or Franklin Graham, or Skip Heisig, or Billy Graham. Especially someone like Billy Graham, we look back on his life and say, well, he was incredible and amazing, all the wonderful movies and documentaries on his life. But if you weren't alive during the time of Billy Graham, Billy Graham had numerous detractors and enemies. He had people that hated his guts who called themselves Christians. And there were people who were very unhappy with him when he went and preached in Russia during the Iron Curtain and the communist reign there by the, the Soviets, the Soviet socialists. And so even when he went there, he was front page news. People were accusing him of selling out the gospel and giving validity to the Moscow Soviet government and taken away from the fact that he was there to preach the gospel and work with the church leaders, whether they were saved or not, he did his thing. So you see, you realize when you're obeying God as best you know how, and Billy Graham was quite certain he was obeying God when he went to the USSR at that time. I think it was the 70s. Uh, Nixon was involved with that because Nixon was the president. It was a really big deal. Like, man, it was huge. And it was profoundly criticized by a lot of people who wore the collar in ministry. But you got to be faithful to what the Lord's calling you to do. And when you do that, there are times even leaders, spiritual leaders, or people that are important, whatever, they're going to come against you and come after you. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. And in this case, these leaders, they get beaten, and then they come after and they accuse Moses and Aaron. So for Moses and Aaron, when you start your ministry, you like to be popular and have some success and feel like, you know, they always say of a leader, is someone a leader? How do you know if someone's a leader? Is anyone following, right? So Moses and Aaron are the leaders, and they want people to follow. Well, if these leaders say you, you've made us a horn in the eyes of Pharaoh, then like you probably feel like a failure as a leader. Like you'd feel that way. Okay, so, and even as we go forward in the text tonight, they're like, God, why haven't you done anything? And, and it's like, we want to be faithful. And when we're called, we, we want to be able to lead and we want to see people following and feel encouraged. But sometimes like, man, the people you lead, they might 
They might not choose to follow, and they might turn against you. And right here, this is what happens to Moses and Aaron. Like, look at this accusation. Like the previous chapter we ended a week ago, they're all like, oh, man, that's awesome. They bowed their heads in worship like, oh, that's great. Good news. It's a church plant. You're going to be our pastor. This is awesome. We're so excited to have a Calvary Chapel in our community or EV Free or Mission Alliance or a Baptist church plant. And then you go there and you do this, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, like the people are excited, like, ah, you know, and they come against you. You haven't done this and you haven't done that. And this can take on a lot of application. But I will point this out about Moses and Aaron. They're just like, whoa. We're going to see in the next verse, they're like, what's up, Lord? So they're just going to, they just have to be faithful to what the Lord's called them to do, like you and I, whatever it is that we're called to do as a spiritual leader in whatever capacity we have it, in our family, in our homes, at work, in our community, in our churches, in this church. But I have to talk about these leaders here. You know, one beating, and these guys are capitulating everything. Like, they're worshiping the Lord, bowing their head in the previous chapter, like, oh, that's great, deliverance is coming, and, and you know, and listen, if it costs you nothing, it usually takes on little value. It's like that, the The destination is awesome of the journey, but it's the journey itself that prepares us for the destination. And when you're going to be delivered from Egypt, there's a refining process that prepares you as you're being delivered, prepares you for where you're going. So the journey, that's why I always say enjoy the journey, because the journey prepares you for when you arrive. So life is a journey preparing us for heaven. And in heaven, we want people of character and depth who have understood the mind of the Lord in their journey. And there's more of Jesus in our life than the beginning, at the end of our life, than the beginning. The journey is part of the process. It's the maturing process. So when we give our life to Christ, then the events of our life shape and mold us to to become more like Christ in our journey. But ultimately, as much as we want fruit in time, space, and matter, it's about being prepared for what God has for us in eternity. Eternity is going to be stewardship entrusted to us by the Lord in another dimension. And we have to have depth, and we have to have character, and we have to have fiber, and we can't be soft. These guys are soft, man. I don't like these religious leaders at all. These guys are soft. They, they're worshiping the Lord in chapter 4. Oh, this is great. We get to have all the promises, and we're going to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and just one beat down, and they're blaming the messengers that told them about the promised land and that they're going to go to the promised land. Human beings are fickle. And one week they'll say, Hosanna, Hosanna, and the next week they'll say, crucify, crucify. Don't be that person in Jesus' name. Be a woman and a man of depth of character. And and be, have some backbone. Don't be afraid of being stretched. Don't be afraid of a little beating. Don't be afraid of a little affliction. Because if anything great's going to come from your life in service to the Lord, you're going to take a little bit of a beating. You get a little beat down. You get some bad calls. Going to get some sanding. You're going to get sanded down with the rough sandpaper, not just the smooth sandpaper. It's a process. We, we, we got to have character. We can't be shallow. And we can't give up that easily. These guys were so, these are shallow leaders. Let me just say this. These guys were shallow leaders. They were supposed to be leaders for God's people. And just pretty much one bad day, They go from praising the Lord to cursing his messengers. Don't be that person. Pastor Chuck Smith, Calvary Coast Mesa, used to have a saying that things have a way of playing out. And it's important with the promises of God and the work of God in our life that we let them play out. 
it's always too early to quit. And when we're in God's will, there can be plenty of affliction and there can be plenty of heartache and bad calls and false accusations because those are the refining sandpaper of the Lord to make us more like Jesus and more dependent upon Jesus. Don't be shallow like these guys. Don't just flip out the first time you have a bad day and take a beat down. Just be a woman of God, be a man of God, and, and go deep in the Lord. Through many afflictions, we must inherit the kingdom of God, is what the Bible says. Verse 22, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he, does, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. There's going to be incredible conversations between the Lord and Moses. Like Moses got to do things in his timeline that no other human beings got to do as far as access to the Lord and communication with the Lord. Moses like, hey, it's like a sports team. Our first game, we got rolled. We got crushed. Like, you said you do this, and you said you do that, but you haven't done any of this. Again, it's like, hey, Moses. Now, they're not, Moses and Aaron aren't like blaming God or, you know, like the leaders, but still they're like, they want things right away. We want things right away. You and I want things right away. I want, we want this whole COVID-19 to go away right away. The president, when he got there and said, hey, the 15-day curve back in March, and, like, and maybe there's an Easter resurrection. Hey, why would we blame the president? We all want, we all wanted to break the curve after 15 days on March 30th yesterday. We all wanted to be in our churches on Easter Sunday. Like, don't fault someone for love hopes all things and bears all things. And we want to see a half full glass for sure, not half empty. And we would hope that we could be back in our churches by Easter service. Man, I was like, I like that. I'm, I, I, you know, I'm believing God for Easter service in the sanctuary, but you know what? Just because you're believing God doesn't mean it's going to happen that way. Cuss not our genie. Hey, I'm believing the Lord for an Easter service and I'm claiming that. No, no, you're not. COVID-19 is kind of running the planet right now. You're not claiming anything. You claim your faith in Jesus and your salvation that will raise you from the grave and come for you as the great shepherd. But we don't know what's going on. When has the planet ever had the same pandemic for the entire planet at the same time? Who would be so foolish to think they know the mind of the Lord, what, what it is this day, the last day of March, or what it's going to be the first day tomorrow of April? Is there any rule, world leader that knows what's going on? Putin was in front of it. And now they're on total lockdown. You can't even fly to Moscow. I got, my, I got my humanitarian visa. I was supposed to go to Russia this month. I'm not going to Russia. Yeah, I can't. I can't go. Russia looked like they're in front of it a month ago. They were so ahead of the game. And now Moscow is on shutdown. And the whole country's on lockdown. There's not one world leader that knows where this is going. You can look at the news where it's been longer and get some ideas what to expect for us. We want things pleasant. We want, we want to just obey the Lord and say, hey, that's what the Lord says. He goes, of course, that's what the Lord says. Let's all go to the promised land to land fun with milk and honey without any affliction or trials. You know, the, the, the trip from the Egypt to the promised land is just like about a week. And it took them 40 years. Like, Time is meant to work in us, like I said earlier, character and produce character in our lives. And it's not, it's, the kingdom of God's not a drive-through fast food restaurant or a drive-through Starbucks. 
the kingdom of God is, is a, it's a maturing process of depth of character. And God doesn't always do things as fast as we want, to, want him to. Listen, we've all heard it in our entire lifetime, wait on the Lord. That Isaiah passage, Isaiah 55, those who wait upon the Lord, or except it's not 55, I think it's 42. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings of eagle, like eagles, they'll run and not go weary and run and not faint. And I mean, I've quoted that verse in the pulpit for 32 years. We think waiting on the Lord is like, okay, we're just going to wait to see if I get the job, if I get accepted to this college, or, you know, whatever it might be, if our offer on the house gets accepted, right? No, waiting on the Lord right now is waiting to find out what happens on this planet with COVID-19. That's waiting on the Lord right now. Waiting on the Lord in April 2020 is waiting to find out if you can even run your business a month from now. Waiting on the Lord is whether or not you can even pay your rent a month from now. Waiting on the Lord is finding out if you're even alive a month from now, because this is a killer virus. We were laughing at this virus back on March 1st. Some people were. And nobody laughing now. When I saw that five police officers in New York were killed by COVID-19, I was like, man, that's all I need to know to just scare me from here to eternity. Wash my hands, wash my hands, wash my hands, wear my mask in public, and stay in the house. We're all waiting on the Lord. Nobody's going to Mount Sinai or coming from Pharaoh's palace saying, God, why aren't you doing this now? I want to go back to work. Listen, waiting on the Lord in April 2020 is something none of us in our timeline, whatever generation we are, has ever seen what waiting on the Lord looks like right now. My dad's in lockdown. He's on week three of lockdown. He moved March 13th, the day before all went down, into his new facility. I got to see him the next day. He's been on lockdown ever since. My dad is in a room by himself, and he is waiting on the Lord. Now, my dad heard all kinds of Bible studies growing up as a kid. And who knows what he's heard ever since then. Like all the elderly in this country right now, he's on lockdown. So even the greatest generation, they're in a room by themselves with meals being delivered three times a day, waiting on the Lord to when they might be able to even go out of their room and walk up and down the hallway for their exercise. So Pop's waiting on the Lord. He was born in 1930. I'm waiting on the Lord. I was born in 1961. My daughter Hannah's waiting on the Lord. She was born in 1990. And even Clem, my granddaughter in Colorado, is waiting on the Lord. She was born in 19, excuse me, in 20, 2019. She's waiting on the Lord. She didn't even know it. She's waiting on the Lord. Look, we're all waiting on the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. There's no one that can tell you when this is over. There's no one that can tell you when this is over. So press in. Stand on the promises. And whatever it looks like as we go through this, we're going through it together in Jesus' name. And whatever it looks like when we get to the other side, whatever the other side is, and whatever it looks like, it might even look like a different dimension when we get through to it. We're going to wait on the Lord. And we're going to draw near to the Lord. And we're going to be more the man of God, the woman of God, the people of God we're meant to be when we come out the backside of this vortex, this matrix, than who we are going in on the front side. We're all waiting on the Lord. We can all relate to Moses. We haven't done yeah, why, 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 why. Forget it. Just bow the knee and say that Jesus Christ is Lord.
And we'll see where we're at when this is done. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, the Lord, they did not know me. I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrim, pilgrimage, that of course is modern Israel, in which they are strangers. And I've heard their groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out of from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue from their bondage. I will redeem you. With an outstretched arm and with great judgments, I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. So Moses spoke... The Lord said this to Moses. Look at verse 2. God said to Moses this. Now, think how powerful this would have been when God spoke this to Moses. We'll come back to it in a minute. But then Moses has it. He's like, okay, i got to go back to the people of God. i got to go back to my own people. And Moses goes back to the children. It says, so Moses thus spoke to the children of Israel, but they didn't heed Moses. No matter how close you are to the Lord, and no matter how sure you are the Lord's spoken to you, you can't convince everybody or sometimes anybody what the Lord has shown you. Like, you just can't sometimes. Now, the word of God is objective, but what God might show you could be subjective from his word, which is objective. And you can say, I feel called to move back to Pennsylvania. I feel called to move to Kauai and do ministry like Sarah Hill, like 20 plus years ago. You might have all these different things that you believe open on your heart. And you can be so sure of it, but there might not be anybody around you that has been given the same word or sees it. So you have to have the faith between you and the Lord. You know the Lord spoke to you. This is the way it is. This is what you need to do. And this is what it was like for Moses. And so it was like, they didn't believe him. That's tough. But if someone's not going to believe you, it's nice at least if you know that the Lord said to you, I'm the Lord. And God says, this is my name, Yahweh. I'm the Lord. Like that's, wow. Like that's, God tells, God's revealing that progressive revelation of himself to Moses. And he's, he's like the only person on the planet that understands like, like God Almighty El Shaddai is Yahweh, the Lord. And he's trying to tell the people, like, I've come from Yahweh. Let me tell you about Yahweh. This is what Yahweh says. I am the Lord. My name is Lord. I've established my covenant to give this land to my people. And I've heard their groanings. And I remember my covenant. I am the Lord. I will bring you out. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And you will know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And then the people didn't listen to Moses. They didn't believe him. Man, you walk away from the people. You're walking down some alley in, in um, Egypt there, Cairo, wherever they were. He is walking around like, wow. All that God gave you and it's all in you. And you try and declare it to the leadership and these soft leaders, just one bad day at work, and they're all like, yeah, no, we don't believe it. It's amazing to me 
how quickly people will discount the voice of the Lord and the word of God. Don't. Just me reading this text should make you think like, wow, the Lord is the Lord and we should be serving the Lord. And we should revere the Lord and obey the Lord, whatever he's called us to do. He is the Lord. It's like Isaiah, where like the, cha- the 40s, the chapters in the 40s. I am the Lord. There's no other. Put me to the test. You build these idols, they fall down on their face. I'm the Lord. I'm a rock. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord. It's his universe. And he's on the move. Verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, so here's more of the Lord speaking, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children um, of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me for I'm of uncircumcised lips? Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So Moses is kind of insecure here in some ways. Verse 12, he's like, uh, uh, they don't heed me. Like, if the children of Israel don't listen to me, why, why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? Like, you know, if I'm not successful in this endeavor, how am I going to be successful in that endeavor? These are the slaves. They're the employees. Uh, how's it going to be when I'm talking to the boss? Like, how's that going to work? You can kind of understand how Moses was thinking here. But God, it says the Lord gave them a command to go to Pharaoh. And it's the way it is. Verse 14. These are the heads of the father's houses. So this now is the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And it's important because it, it sheds light and gives a foundation for events that will happen going forward in the book of Exodus, plus Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well. So of the 12 tribes of Israel, remember, they're the tribe of Levi. And the priests would come from the tribe of Levi. And Moses' brother Aaron will be the first high priest, and all the subsequent high priests will come from him. So that's why this is important. So we read this. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the families of Reuben. And the sons of Simeon were Jamuliel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shoal, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. So those are the three brothers that came from Leah and Jacob before Levi was born. So these are his older brothers, the older brothers of Levi. And now we get to Levi, verse 16. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And the years of the life of Levi were 137 the sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the years of the life of Kohath were 133. The sons of Merari were Mahaliel, Muji. These are the families of Levi, according to their generations. And Amram took for himself Yochebed, his father's sister, as wife, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. And the years of the life of Amram were 137. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. And the sons of Uziel were Mishael, Eliphan, and Zithri. Aaron took to himself Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab, sister of Nashon, as wife. She bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. They're all future priests. They're important in the storyline going forward. Verse 24. And the sons of Korah were Aster, Ekna, Abisaph. These are the sons of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took for himself one of the daughters of Putiel, his wife, and she bore him Phineas, these are the heads of the father's house and the Levites according to their families. So in that high priest line, Aaron was the first, then Eleazar, and then Phineas, and that's why those names are important there. Verse 26. These are the same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. These are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same 
Moses, and Aaron. So this is their genealogy, their family background, which is a foundation in a historical template for things that go forward in the five books here going, again, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I do want to point out to you verse 20 here, Amram and Yochebed, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when we were doing chapter 1 and 2, that there in Hebrews 11, they're there not by name but as the parents of Moses, that by faith they did not fear the king's decree when he was killing all the babies. And they, they loved their son Moses, and they... They, they were willing to risk everything, which, of course, is pretty paternal instinct, but there's more to it in their case because they're commended for their faith. So again, Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses and Aaron. It's Moses, the lawgiver, Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam, their sister, the first prophetess. What an amazing family. What amazing three children that came forth from affliction. Think about it. Aaron didn't get to grow up with his brother Moses, neither did Miriam. And yet the three of them in their adult lives were critical to the events surrounding Israel and their exodus from Egypt in moving toward the promised land. What an amazing family that came from these two parents. I wish there was more we could study about the parents, how they raised their children, what they did. Like, but we know that, again, they put Moses in the, in the boat, like a little bullrush floating vessel there, and committed him to the Lord. And God honored that. And they're just amazing. So praise the Lord. Their faith in the God of Abraham was passed on to their children, and their children did amazing things. And that's when we think about our genealogy, our, our family line, our life, that who we are if we're married, our children and our children's children, that we're building that spiritual genealogy, much like a Billy Graham did with his kids, with Franklin Graham and his daughter, Amgram Lotz, and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren. That's who we are. That's who we want to be is that godly heritage. And it certainly came from this part of the descendants of Levites, the family from which Moses came. Now we pick it up in verse 28. It came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I'm of uncircumcised lips. Like, just how shall Pharaoh heed me? I can't speak. I don't have the skill set. It's not, it's not going to work. And We've seen so far in these first six chapters, Moses is really struggling with confidence in his calling. He's struggling with confidence to speak in his calling on behalf of the Lord. But the amazing thing is, Stephen, there in the book of Acts, he said that Moses was learned in the Egyptian ways and that he was a great speaker. So whatever happened in the 40 years between when he killed the Egyptian at the age 40 and he fled to the wilderness and lived with Jethro for his father-in-law for 40 years, something in that 40 years, as we say, he spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, then he spent 40 years finding out he was nobody, and we say the last 40 years, we learned that God can take a, a nobody and make them a somebody for his kingdom. But there's something that happened with Moses that so broke him down. Now, we're told later on that he's the most humble man on the earth. That's an interesting detail that the Holy Spirit gives us about Moses. He's the most humble person on the planet. And his humility works for him, but we sometimes have to be careful that our, excuse me, our humility isn't a false humility and that it doesn't move toward fear and unavailability and unwillingness to do what God has for us. So, yeah, Moses had his, he had his things here, but in the end, 
He's got to get past his fear of men, his fear of failure, and fulfill his calling. So again, Moses has to get past himself and any fears he might have and let this, just that availability be his key, not his ability. And that's what's going to make him fruitful for his calling. So, and it's the same for us.